This program's about the impossible. There's a good chance that you believe in the impossible. In 1967, Dr. George Wald won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Wald said, When it comes to the origin of life, there are two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that led us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. This Nobel Prize-winning scientist rejected the science that God had to be the creator of life, the only possible explanation for you. Me, I'm a Christian because I don't believe in the impossible. Stay tuned and let's explore the universe as it really is. I'm Paul and this is C-Y-K-I-A-E. In the previous part of this program, I told you that Justice O'Loughlin, who, before he was appointed to the bench, had done a lot of work as counsel appearing for Aboriginals, had heard the leading two test stolen generation cases of Kibolo and Gunnar versus the Commonwealth. And he found that they hadn't been wrongfully taken from their parents. In fact, after this case, no stolen generation cases have ever again been brought before the courts. Why? Well, because after the six judges of the High Court who heard the case of Kruger and the Commonwealth found there was no genocide policy behind the removal of Aboriginal children, and this case, which found that in the carrying out of the welfare policies of the government towards Aboriginal children, there was no genocide, and then its unsuccessful appeal from Justice O'Loughlin's judgment to the full federal court and then the failure of Cabello and Gunner to get leave to appeal to the High Court of Australia, which was heard by Justice Gleeson and Justice McHugh from the full federal court judgment, which had been heard by Justices Sackville, Weinberg and Healy, the unanimous rejection of the claim of the stolen generations by eight High Court judges and four federal court judges, and the judicial precedents then in place after the utter failure of the cases and the overwhelming evidence brought against those cases has meant that there have been no further cases brought by anyone alleging that they were members of the stolen generations. Any such claim is utterly untenable. This claim that there ever was a genocidal policy of the stolen generations in Australia now only lives in political and academic circles, which choose to ignore the reality of the court findings in these cases, which, unlike the Bring Them Home report, with witnesses from only one side who were heard not to a standard required in a court of law. Sadly, Australia's name remains smeared internationally because of the Bring Them Home report and the ongoing political academic agitation which ignores the reality of the fatal impact on those claims of the High Court and the Federal Court findings. In my last program, I was up 
to the part about Peter Gunner and the circumstances of how he came to be taken into care. Remember that immediately after he was born, his mother had put him on top of an ant's nest in an attempt to kill him. His auntie had rescued the baby. He was seven years old when he was taken to the Retta Davis home. Why was he taken? Just as Sir Lachlan continued to go through the evidence of Mrs McLeod, the wife of the owner of Utopia Station, where Peter Gunner's mother Topsy was living. At paragraph 804, he continued, Her diary, that is the diary of Mrs McLeod, for Thursday 16 November 1950, some two years later, contains this entry. Peter was very sick in the camp. We went down to see him, then called the doctor at the five o'clock session. Dr. Pryor ordered eight sulfuramide tabs, four in the morning and two for the next two days. Mrs. McLeod continued in her affidavit. I remember the situation quite clearly. Topsy's baby Peter was in the camp and was in a totally neglected state. It was shocking. He was very sick. In general, all the babies in the camp were well looked after and healthy, but we could see that this baby was completely neglected and looked to be almost starving. After we saw the baby, we called the Alice Springs Flying Doctor Base. My diary notes, I spoke to Dr. Pryor, who told us what to do. The following day, when we went down to check on Peter and give him the tablets, he was even worse. I wrote in my diary on Friday, 17 November, Peter, unconscious today. Jimmy was going to bury him. He dug the grave ready, but Alex stopped him from burying him. I can still remember this clearly. As far as the Aborigines were concerned, if someone was sick and became unconscious, they were dead. The Jimmy I referred to in my diary was Motorbike Jimmy. His Honour then dealt in detail with the circumstances of Peter Gunner and how he came to be taken into care by the government with the consent of his mother by putting her thumbnail on the document consenting to his being taken away as her signature. Most full black Aboriginals were illiterate. This evidence was given at paragraphs 49 concerning Mr Vincent, who gave the evidence at paragraph 310 of the judgment about how illiterate Aboriginals gave their consent. Paragraph 49 reads in the judgment, Mr Ivan Leonard Ray Vincent, a qualified social worker, was 87 years of age when he gave evidence. He had occupied the position of Administrative Officer General Welfare in the Welfare Branch from September 1958 to December 1961. By the time of his arrival, Lorna Nelson had already left the Retta Dixon home and Peter Gunner had already moved into St Mary's. Mr Vincent had no recollection of either of them. Speaking of part Aboriginal children, Mr Vincent testified that he was aware that they were brought in on a mother's request for education and care to give them opportunity, and that would be done with the mother's consent. Others were admitted by the mothers themselves directly conferring with the mission. Mr Vincent said that it was a matter for the patrol officer to talk with the mother and obtain her consent and signature if necessary. If the mother could not sign a document, the process was a thumbprint. He could not recall any circumstances 
where a patrol officer brought a child in without the mother's consent. At paragraph 787, his honour found that Topsy had given the necessary consent for her son to be taken into St Mary's. He said this, But that was no reason for assuming that because Topsy was a tribal Aboriginal, she did not understand what was happening. The line of documents that were compiled in the Native Affairs branch favours a positive conclusion that Topsy gave her informed consent to her son going to St Mary's. On the balance of probabilities, that is the conclusion at which I have arrived. From all of the circumstances, the removal of Peter into care seems to have been a blessing. The evidence from the previous program was that some tribes didn't accept half-caste children. Topsy was still unmarried, past the age when she would have been married. That was most likely because she was an outcast in the tribe because she had a half-caste child. Mrs MacLeod, on behalf of her husband, had written to the government authorities to put in a request for government social services support for her. Mrs MacLeod's evidence was that Topsy was an outcast in her family. The medical situation of Peter being in severe physical distress when none of the other full-blood Aboriginal children were is the final piece of the puzzle of Peter's story. His imminent death seems likely to have been on the cards. At best, all he could look forward to was a life of extreme suffering and isolation. His mother's love for him, given that she had tried to kill him by putting him on top of an ant's nest when he was born, was problematic. Taking him away into care appears to have been, without a doubt, the best outcome for him. And I have to emphasise that this case of Peter Gunner's was chosen as one of the two outstandingly favourable cases brought to establish the precedent that he was a victim of an evil government policy of genocide. I think we have to understand that as meaning that the other cases that were never heard, because after these two cases ran their course of appeals up to the High Court, not a single case alleging genocide and the stolen generations was ever brought. So the other cases presumably were worse than, not as good as Peter Gunner's. So from what we've just learnt from the judgment of the experiences of the baby and then the young child Peter Gunner, as revealed in the evidence, I can see why the governments of the day were doing what they were doing in taking children into care for their own welfare. It was definitely the right thing for those children. If there was any genocide of half-caste children going on, I would have to suggest that it was by the Aboriginals. The exact circumstances of the people running the system of taking children into custody and caring for them will be looked at in another program. But it's time to turn my attention to Lorna Cabillo. So, what was Lorna Cabillo's story? Lorna Cabillo was in a different position to Peter Gunner. Her mother had died when she was young. She was born on 8 August 1938. She was taken to Retta Dixon home in 1947. She was seven years old then, according to Justice O'Loughlin. At that age, it's extremely unlikely whether she knew anything about the circumstances of her removal. It was unclear whether anyone was legally in charge of her when she was removed to the Retta Dixon home. She wasn't able to satisfy the court that there was anyone whose consent for her removal 
Doretta Dixon home could have been obtained from, and she had the onus of proof in that regard. She had to prove that she had been taken without the consent of somebody who was legally responsible for her. It seems that there was no one in that category. She was literally an orphan. With no evidence to show that no consent had been given for her removal, she failed to make out her case. The law would be unworkable if the onus of proof was reversed. She was demanding the payment of damages to her. To succeed in her case, she had to prove that she qualified. That is, that she was a child removed from the person who had lawful custody of her without that person's consent. And she failed. The entire governmental system for dealing with Aboriginal children and half-caste children made consent essential. Justice O'Loughlin found that there was no reason to think that the proper procedures hadn't been followed when Lorna Cabillo was removed into care. At paragraph 1245 of his judgment, Justice O'Loughlin found the power of removal and detention was available in each case to the Director of Native Affairs by virtue of the provisions of sections 6 and 16 of the Aboriginal's Ordinance. The power could have been misapplied if the Director failed to have regard to the requirements in section 6 that it could only be exercised when he was of the opinion that it was necessary or desirable in the interests of the child to exercise the power. It was open to Mrs Cabillo to satisfy the court that the director failed to act in accordance with the provisions of Section 6. I cannot assume out of a feeling of sympathy for Mrs Cabillo that Mr Moy failed to perform his statutory functions. Okay, what about the field officers, the concentration camp guards? What kind of people were they? His honour of necessity had to speak about the field officers who were responsible for dealing with the Aboriginal communities directly and addressing any issues of concern about the welfare of particularly half-caste Aboriginal children. Although in the popular culture generated by the stolen generation myth, these people are today painted as fiends, that wasn't how Justice O'Loughlin found them as he watched them give evidence and read their reports to governments going back all of those decades. Remember that the Bring Them Home inquiry didn't call many, possibly not any, witnesses who were on the other side of the stolen generation's claim. So Sir Ronald Wilson and Mick Dodson did not hear this evidence that I'm about to read to you. At paragraph 28 of his judgment, Justice O'Loughlin had this to say about these field officers. The calibre of the former officers of the Native Affairs Branch and the Welfare Branch who gave evidence in this trial was exceptionally high. Many of them were highly educated and many subsequently achieved high postings in government in later life. Their achievements are noted later in these reasons. My reason for mentioning this factor is to identify them as people of intelligence and experience who might be expected to have knowledge and awareness of the policies that existed in relation to Aboriginal and part Aboriginal people, and the manner in which those policies were implemented. As the summaries of their evidence will reveal, all of them denied the existence of a general or widespread policy of removal of part Aboriginal children, and most of them 
insisted that no child was removed without the consent of the mother of that child. The conduct of one field officer received a lot of attention from Justice O'Loughlin, Mr Lovegrove. He was asked about any policy of forced removal of Aboriginal children without their mother's consent. At paragraphs 301 and 302 of the judgment, His Honour said, Mr Lovegrove said, and I accept, that he never received an instruction to bring in a part Aboriginal child irrespective of the wishes of the child's family. He acknowledged that discussions between a patrol officer and a mother about the welfare and future of her child could be complex and time-consuming. He agreed that it would be an extraordinarily difficult task. I regarded Mr Longgrove as one who was a genuine friend to the Aboriginal and part Aboriginal people. He would not be one who would have participated in such a traumatic event. Conversely, if he had been a party to a forced removal, it would have been an event that would not have left his mind. I am satisfied that Mr Lovegrove was never involved in the forced removal of a child from the child's family. The next question and answer in Mr Lovegrove's evidence was also very important. Are you able to say from your supervision of the patrol officers and your observation of patrol officers to the extent that you had it, whether other patrol officers adopted the same approach as you or a different approach. I would say generally speaking they adopted the same approach as me, but patrol officers are individuals and they probably had different degrees of enthusiasm for it and they may have argued longer than I did. But no, I, you know, apart from that, I don't think that, well I think they were very much the same as me. That statement cannot be taken as a proven fact that no patrol officer ever engaged in an act of forced removal. Such an event could have occurred without Mr Lovegrove knowing of it. But his evidence goes a long way towards a conclusion that in his time there was no widespread practice of forcibly removing part Aboriginal children from their mothers. At paragraph 302 his honour continued. Mr Lovegrove said that as a district welfare officer, but not as a patrol officer, he had cases of children who were suffering from neglect, not only part Aboriginal children, but white children as well. In such cases, it was his practice to have the child brought before the court, so that, in appropriate cases, the court could make a declaration that the child was neglected. The child would then be placed in the care of the Director of Child Welfare. At paragraph 372 of the judgment, His Honour said, Mr Lovegrove submitted a report dated 25 February 1954. It summarised his activities for the 12 months that ended on 31 December 1953. Under the heading, Part Aboriginal Children, he wrote, On the stations visited by me, there were 27 part Aboriginal children, 10 male and 17 female, under the age of 10 years. Of these, four males and five females are the children of part Aboriginal full-blood combination and are living with their father and mother as a family unit. Unfortunately, none of the remaining children were voluntarily offered for removal to an institution, although in each case the mother was approached and the advisability of such a move was explained to her. 
For the five years prior to 1953, this district was patrolled by the one patrol officer, and the natives came to know him well, and were in many cases willing to hand their part Aboriginal children to him for removal as he thought fit. I came to them as a comparative stranger, and I can quite realise their unwillingness to afford me the same rather dubious privilege. Mr Lovegrove explained his reference to a rather dubious privilege this way. Well, I'm not the sort of person who would have enjoyed taking a child away from its family, unless it was unless there was some compelling reason, welfare-wise, that it should be done. Let's talk about the rabbit-proof fence in my next program. Is it true? If it's not true, what is the truth? Thanks for listening into this program, CYKIAE. If you missed it, you can catch up with it as a podcast on my CYKIAE, Spotify, Apple, Google, and many other podcast sites. Just look at my program details on Cairns FM 89.1 for clickable links. I'm Paul. Don't miss my next program because you're going to love it. I want to thank my ghostwriter, without whom this program would definitely not have been possible, the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could catch up with me at my church, the Gafcon Northern Hope Anglican Church at the Cairns and District Junior Estedford Hall, 67 Greenslopes Street, Edge Hill, some Sunday at 9am. If you liked this program, you should definitely listen in to my other explosive program, The Danger Zone, also available as a podcast on those same sites. Search Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close brackets.